A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you've joined the program today. We're going to be talking about the crime spike that we are seeing in a lot of cities around the country. Not every city, it should be noted, but uh, a number of cities setting new records for homicides. Places like Philadelphia, PA, Rochester, New York, Portland, Oregon. Uh, Over 100 homicides this year in San Francisco. I mean, look, it's bad in a lot of cities. And gun control advocates have a simple answer for this, right? Where's the guns out there? Oh, we got a lot of Americans buying guns uh, last year, and uh, clearly that's what led to the crime spike. I mean, you even heard Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, say this when he went to Chicago for a special judiciary hearing meeting uh, in the Windy City all about, quote-unquote, gun violence. Durbin says it's because of gun owners. It's because of the gun sales. It's because we don't have enough gun control laws. Well, today's guest would beg to differ. Uh, James Buchal is an attorney for the National Police Association, and he says, you know, one of the things that we are not talking about uh, is the officer shortages that we are seeing in uh, departments big and small all across the country. I mean, we've obviously seen and you've, you know, seen the stories about Seattle, Washington being down hundreds of officers. Baltimore, Maryland is down hundreds of officers, but small towns that you've probably never even heard of are, are dealing with the same issue as well. And uh, James James Buchel says this is emboldening criminals and driving up the crime rate. Take a look and a listen. James, thank you so much, sir, for coming on the program. It's good to talk with you today. Thank you. Uh, so, so let's get right to it because, you know, look, I don't know how many shows that I've done over the course of this year talking about the rise in violent crime. Um, all of the variables that people say, okay, this is it, right? It's because more guns were sold last year. Uh, it's because the riots happened last year. Um, it's because of uh, prosecution's decisions or prosecutor's decisions. It's because of police staffing. Now, I happen to think that there's probably more than one thing going on here. I don't think that it's because we saw, you know, more people, more legal gun owners uh, in the United States over the last 12 months. But but I I do want to talk about and focus it on police staffing. I was just writing a story today about what's going on in Washington state. Uh, You've got a bunch of people who are introducing all kinds of new gun control proposals. And yet I'm looking at stories showing officer shortfalls, not only in big cities like Seattle, but small towns, too. And and these police chiefs are saying, look, this is having an impact on our ability to respond to crime, and it's making criminals more emboldened. Is there something to that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a direct relationship between a lack of police staffing and more criminality. <laughs> it's not, and, and, I mean, yeah, I mean, again, this seems it's common simple. sense, right? Yes. Absolutely. So, so, so. Is this something that that really started in earnest last year um, as a response to the death of George Floyd, the the the, you know, the the flowering of the 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 police movement? Or is this something that's been happening longer than we might think? It's been underway for a long time. I mean, there's a long term plan to sort of dismantle law and order and bring about disorder. And there's a long term plan to replace prosecutors who are tough on crime with prosecutors who, you know, think that prisons are unfair and we should just, you know, sing kumbaya with all the criminals and everything will be just fine. And, you know, more and more elections are being won by these sorts of people. And as that happens, then then there's a very sharp upturn in the amount of 
crime because the, the, the punishments are gone. And then on top of that, you have things like the initiative down in California where yeah, you can steal anything you want up to 950 bucks and you're okay. And so now you get the flash mobs, you know, going into the stores and everybody gets to steal a little bit and not much happens. And it's stores are closing and, and it's, it's an ugly scene out there. It is an ugly scene. And it does seem like, like some politicians are starting to pick up on this. Uh, I don't know if you saw the comments from San Francisco mayor, London breed, uh, but she said it's time. This was on Tuesday. She said it's time for the reign of criminals who are destroying our city. It's time for it to come to an end. And it comes to an end when we take the steps to more uh, be more aggressive with law enforcement, more aggressive with the changes in our policies and less tolerant of all of the BS, she says, that has destroyed our city. Um, I mean, look, I'm glad to hear the mayor say this, but it sounds I mean. Come on, James, there, there's a lot of BS that came from the mayor herself that has come from the prosecutor, that has come from city council members in, in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia. I mean, it's 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 almost insulting to see some of these politicians now turn on a dime because the polls show that Americans are getting fed up with their policies. Well, Americans need to watch what they do and not what they say. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so what what can be done and what is being done? Are you seeing any signs of hope that uh, that some of these uh, staffing issues are are starting to get resolved or at least starting to be addressed? No, but but I, I suppose the change in rhetoric is is at least a, there's a sense now that that maybe going further in that direction might possibly be a mistake. So I think the the sudden you know, the, the rise of this defund the police movement, a little air has come out of that. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. Even if we're not going backwards to, you know, fully funding and getting all the staffing up where it should be, we're, we're at least not dismantling things as fast as we were last year. <laughs> well, I mean, boy, if that doesn't, if, if that's the positive side, I mean, again, that, that shouldn't make anybody feel good about where we are right now. And as you say, like, even in those, jurisdictions that have said, okay, yeah, we really are having a problem here. We need to do something to retain officers, to uh, to maybe even rehire officers. How do these cities get the trust uh, of these officers back after they've basically said, look, you're the problem here, not the violent criminals, not the carjackers, not the home invaders. No, you officers are the problem here. How, how, how do they, I mean, honestly, why would an officer want to go to work for a, a department in a city where the the political power structure views them as the bigger problem than violent criminals. Yeah, that's a that's a serious problem. I mean, the cities that have turned in these extreme ways are having massive problems with officer retention and hiring, and and that's making the situation worse. But they 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 can't stop themselves. I mean, there's still so many anti-police city council members and mayors and out out mouthing this stuff that. You know, they can say they're all for law and order, but then if you press a little harder, it's it's the let's sing kumbaya with the criminals and rehabilitative or restorative justice and equity more important than justice and all this kind of stuff. And, and it's it's just a real it's a real mess. It, it is a real mess. And it seems to me that it's not um, th- this is not equally a mess wherever you look. Uh, in other words, I, it seems to me like there are some problem spots and then you've got. So you've got officers who may be leaving the city of Seattle, but but they're able to find employment like in the suburban uh, uh, communities or maybe with a county sheriff's office uh, not too far away. Um, are, are there is that right? Is that is that is that the right way to look at it? Or is that what we're actually seeing around? Well, the that's country? part of the right way to look at it. But part of the problem is that as the 
as the government sort of expands and begins choking off economic activity in the more rural areas, the tax basis there begin to suffer. And so there's counties now that, you know, there's plenty of police officers they could hire who'd be happy to work there, but they're not bringing in the taxes to hire them. And, you know, Josephine County, Oregon, the sheriff is saying, you know, guys better get your guns, you know, because we just can't cover, you know, the, the taxes just aren't there. And uh, it's, it's a shame. It's, it's, it's a real, it's a real cancer of, of government that we're suffering that is, that is, that is causing this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And you're right. I mean, it's a really good point. I actually live in rural Virginia and I think the starting pay for our sheriff's deputies is somewhere between 24 and $27,000 a year. Um, which, wow. you know, obviously if you're just starting out in law enforcement, uh, and you want that first job, great. If you are a local and, you know, you, you want to live in this community, you might be able to make those sacrifices, but you know, it's hard to lure an officer from Richmond, Virginia, uh, or, or even, you know, a city like Roanoke, uh, you know, an hour or two West, um, for a starting salary that, you know, is, is not going to be able to, to put food on the table for them and their family. Yeah, and and historically the retirement benefits have been you know reasonably generous, and so there's a lot of officers who'll just say, "Hey, I'll take the early retirement. I'll I'll, I'll just leave," and that further shrinks the supply. And and yeah, it's just it's I don't know. There's there's no simple solution. Uh, you know, it, the country has to sort of wake up and say, you know, we don't want this stuff anymore. And then that's the first part. But then the harder part is shaking off the yoke of our rulers who want all these things we don't want. That's right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that is the tough part because I think that we've gotten to the point that Americans are starting to speak up and speak out. I think that's again, why you're seeing people like London Breed say, okay, we've got to get aggressive here on violent crime. But if, if that's just talk and there's no action behind it, if the, if the fundamentals don't change, um, it's hard to see how the, the deteriorating situation in a lot of these cities changes for the better in the future either. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to do about it. I mean, on behalf of the National Police Association, you know, we, we file briefs and try and put, push things in the right direction. And, you know, up in this um, Pierce County, Washington case, we're trying to sort of get the judiciary interested in looking at law and order as sort of a fundamental right in the way they look at education or other things as a fundamental right and start, you know, getting a little more judicial activism when these other branches of government are totally failing because, you know, the maintaining law and order is where all the other rights come from. If you don't have a functioning rule of law and, and, and ordered society, <laughs> You know, all the other rights fail. And that's that's the direction that we're going in faster and faster. Yeah. It, it, tell me a little bit more about this case in Pierce County, Washington, uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with the details. What is, what is this all about? Well, it's a sad case. I mean, it's it's a, it's a young officer with a family uh, is one of essentially two deputies assigned to an area of 700 square miles. And there's a home invasion call. And he goes out there and there's no backup and there's no supervisor. And so he tries to be a hero and chase these two armed people and one of them kills him. Um, and so his widow and children have brought a lawsuit saying, wait a minute, you know, the choices you have made as a government to essentially not have the amount of staffing that your own consultants reports and everything tells you is required 
the choices you've made to not train officers, unfortunately, train officers to protect themselves and 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 not you know go out and, and chase the armed people when they're all alone. You know, all of these things are are we think a species of negligence, and we think that Pierce County, like any any other employer, has a duty to you know run its run its shop so to speak in a safe way, and and so. Um, Officer McCartney's, uh, just, you know, the survivors brought the suit and immediately the trial court threw it out. And the trial court threw it out on the ground that, well, you know, it's all very nice that these, that these, you're alleging these decisions, but these are, you know, other branches of government. And we as the judge are really just sort of potted plants who, who can't second guess what these other branches of government have done. <laughs> so, and so I think the American people, and certainly we have a more... <laughs> A more a view that judges should have a little more vigor in their job and should not just be potted plants. And right. when there's a you know real transgression of fundamental legal norms, that the court should step up as they do every time the left wants them to. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, it's interesting because as you're describing this, you know, we obviously talk about a lot of Second Amendment cases, and so I mean, you know, look, it is not uncommon for let's say the Ninth Circuit. Uh, to uphold some, you know, crazy gun control law on the basis of, well, the government has a, an interest in public safety. Uh, and even if this gun control law infringes on your right to keep and bear arms a little bit, uh, the, the public safety interests of the state outweigh your individual right to keep and bear arms. I mean, I've seen the courts make this argument. But mm. if, this, if the state, or in this case, Pierce County, has a legitimate interest in public safety, and they are failing to do their due duty. They're failing to do their diligence in providing that public safety. Again, it seems to me like that would be actionable. I mean, what about a case like, I'm curious how general you could apply this. What about a case like Baltimore, Maryland, which I believe right now the city is short about 400 officers. Wow. Um, clearly that would have an impact on, on violent crime. Clearly that would have an impact on public safety. I would argue it would have an impact on officer safety as yeah, well. Yeah. And think about what happens like with litigation in prisons, you know, mm -hmm. um, if there's not enough prison guards or something, the courts will get right in there. Oh, prisoners rights. We care a lot about prisoners. You know, let's have a special master appointed, you know, to make some recommendations about how to run the prisons and let's force them to hire this, or let's force them to give sex change operations or whatever we're doing, you know. There's a way in which the judiciary knows quite well how to intervene in these situations when it wants to. And so part of what needs to change is we need to have a judiciary that is as motivated to address you know, the rights of ordinary Americans as they are to address the rights of all these special interest groups that have come in there and, uh, you know, oh, they're not spending enough money on schools. Let's bring a lawsuit. You know, you're denying our fundamental right for education. Out comes a decision from the court. Yeah, you know, this, this, you're not spending enough on education or whatever. Uh, but, but when it comes to the police officers and the most fundamental of all rights, we haven't seen the court step forward as, as, as we think they should. And so that's, that's the chief argument we make in this, in this brief we filed recently in the Court of Appeals, the McCartney case. I appreciate James joining us on the program, and uh, we are going to keep an eye on that story out of Pierce County, Washington. It's it's an interesting theory. I again, I don't know if the courts are going to go for it, but I, again, I mean, I just haven't seen so many bad gun control laws uh, upheld uh, on the idea that well, the the state has an interest in uh, promoting public safety, and so therefore they're going to have this gun control law. 
it seems to me like if the state does have that same interest in promoting public safety, then shouldn't the law enforcement agencies, or at least the counties or the localities, maybe the state police in uh, in certain circumstances, shouldn't they uh, be required or at least empowered to have the prerequisite number of officers needed uh, for a jurisdiction of a particular size? I mean, the idea that you have two deputies patrolling 700 square miles. And look, I, I, I get the argument of, hey, listen, uh, counties, you know, we don't we don't print money. So every deputy that we hire has to come out of our budget somewhere, some way. I, look, I get that argument. I understand it completely. But for instance, um, what would happen if the Democrats in charge of the state legislature in Olympia, Washington, instead of trying to ban magazines and AR-15s and impose new restrictions on the right to carry and storage mandates and everything else that they're proposing in the next legislative session. What if instead of all of that, instead of trying to put new laws on the books, they were actually interested in putting more police on the streets of the communities that desperately need help? Hmm. Think they could get it done if they really wanted to? I think they could. But again, it's not a priority for them right now. Well, I hope that, again, the public in the coming months, just as we've been showing up at our school board meetings, uh, that we're going to keep contacting our lawmakers. We're going to let them know that public safety is a priority for us. But you, you don't make the public any safer by disarming them. You don't make the public any safer by stripping them of their right to keep and bear arms. You make the public safer by ensuring that they do have their right of self-defense, but that we also have a functioning law enforcement system, a functioning criminal justice system that ensures consequences for the actual perpetrators of violence. Now, let's turn our attention, speaking of perpetrators of violence, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, as well as our recidivist report. We'll start there. Here's the headline. Here's what we know about the suspect accused of shooting a 22-year-old Phoenix police officer. Well, I'll tell you one thing we know about this suspect. He was on probation. 24-year-old Essa Williams identified as the suspect, again, who shot uh, 22-year-old uh, police officer Tyler Moldovan, who is now fighting for his life, shot multiple times in the line of duty on Tuesday in Phoenix. Officers got a call about 2 o'clock Tuesday morning about cars driving erratically. Officers went to the scene. They found a car matching the description of one of those uh, vehicles. After searching the area, they found Williams hiding behind a wall of an apartment patio. Officer Maldivan gave Williams commands, but instead the suspect allegedly pulled out a gun and shot the officer repeatedly. Last night, Williams appeared before a judge facing charges of attempted first-degree murder, attempted aggravated assault, resisting arrest, and possession of a firearm by a prohibited possessor. Yep. Police say Williams is no stranger to law enforcement. Nine prior felonies at the age of 24. Nine prior felonies at the age of 24, including armed robbery and aggravated assault. According to court records, Williams went on a multi-day crime spree in September of 2014, seven years ago, which included aggravated assault, armed robbery, stealing multiple vehicles. He was sentenced to five years in prison. And while he was behind bars, DOC records show that he had several disciplinary infractions, including assaulting an inmate and participating in a riot. His most recent violation happened just days before he was released from prison, but he was still released from prison. Supposed to be on probation until 2024. Clearly, he should have been behind prison a lot, been in prison a lot longer than five years. But again, this is, I think, the real issue. It's not legal gun owners. 
It's not a right to keep and bear arms. It's the fact that violent individuals can be convicted of crimes and walk away with a slap on the wrist. All right, today's armed citizen story, Houston, Texas, where a woman shot her ex-boyfriend after he broke into her apartment uh, overnight. Uh, this from uh, ABC 13. They say it was just before 10 p.m. on Tuesday. Police say the man used a concrete paver to break the glass patio door of his ex-girlfriend's apartment and gain entry. Ex-girlfriend inside with her new boyfriend. Lieutenant uh, R. Wilkins with the Houston Police Department said he decided today, I guess out of jealousy, he took a concrete paver, bashed in the back door patio window, door with a lot of glass on it, busted it, went into the apartment. Once inside, he chased after his ex-girlfriend. That's when she grabbed a pistol and fired several times. He was shot twice in the legs, once in the stomach, according to police. He ran back through the door that he broke, collapsed outside, taken to the hospital. He is expected to survive, which is good, because now he can face criminal charges. Uh, meanwhile, the ex-girlfriend, according to police, clearly acted in self-defense, not expected to face any charges there in uh, Houston, Texas. And we will uh, keep our eyes up to date or uh, uh, we'll keep our eyes open for any more uh, updates to this particular story. Uh, finally, today, our good deed of the day from Austin, Texas, where voters recently uh, uh, turned down a uh, ballot referendum that would have required full staffing for the Austin Police Department. So they said no thanks to that, which, again, shows the trouble that we're having. But here's what life is like for the rank-and-file police officers in Austin. Uh, Officer Chris Fearson, saving lives using medical supplies that he is buying himself because they don't have the equipment, because they don't have the budget. Uh, Chris Fearson of the uh, Austin PD said he was spurred on to buy his own equipment after he responded to a drive-by shooting a year ago. And he said, when I got there, I didn't really have the necessarily implementations to assist her. So I had to wait basically until the paramedics and the firefighters arrived. Now, the woman did survive. He said it took only a few minutes for the other first responders to get there. But he said it felt like forever at the time. And he said, I didn't want to have that helpless feeling again. So I decided to go out and buy my own kit. So they got to have, you know, the tools that he needed, like chest seals, bandages. Cost about $1,250 out of pocket. But uh, Officer Fearson, who is also a Marine Corps veteran, says he is in the, in the year since. Uh, twice used chest seals. Uh, he has also used Narcan repeatedly that he has obtained through the uh, Austin-Travis County EMS. Of course, that uh, uh, medicine used to revive overdose victims. He said the most recent deployment was last week. There was a gentleman who had attempted to commit suicide by overdosing on Percocet. Uh, when officers arrived, he was lifeless, blew from the neck up. Pearson used a, a bag and valve mask that he had, again, purchased with his own money uh, to ventilate the man. Austin Fire Department actually honored the uh, police officer with an impromptu award ceremony. Battalion Chief Andy Reardon says, uh, sometimes you just go out and buy things on your own. We do that because that's what we sign up for is to help people. So I completely commend him for doing that. Now, Fearson was asked, do you, you know, would you like to see the police department provide every officer with one of these kits? And he said, well, of course. <laughs> he said, that'd be a great idea. But fiscally, it would be pretty expensive to equip every officer that we have with a kit like that. And again, there would be a cost. It could be paid. I mean, Austin's not exactly hurting for money. That cost could be paid. But unfortunately, Austin is one of those cities where law enforcement isn't seen as a priority. In fact, it is seen, frankly, by a lot of the residents 
It's more of a problem than anything else. Now, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program. As always, we love it when you join us here. And uh, hopefully, you'll visit the website, bearingarms.com, throughout the day for even more Second Amendment news and information. If you like what you see, I would always encourage you to become a VIP member. Not only will you get exclusive content, news stories, analysis, stuff you won't find anywhere else, you will get that warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you are supporting independent Second Amendment journalism. Uh, the kind that, frankly, I, I hope we I, I, I hope we deliver much more of what we need in this uh, country every day, which is, I think, a balanced perspective uh, on our right to keep and bear arms and the attempts to infringe on that right in the name of public safety. You can use the promo code GUNRIGHTS. You'll get 25% off of your VIP membership. And I really do appreciate and thank you for your support. We'll be back tomorrow with even more Second Amendment news and information. But until then, be well, be safe, and be free. 